Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Let's open in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word, how you've revealed to us uh, the things of your heart and your instructions for our life. And we ask, God, that your spirit would fill us as we open up this text in Habakkuk 2 and that you would speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing on through Habakkuk 2. Um, and this chapter is where God told Habakkuk to write down this vision uh, to address a complaint that the prophet had regarding God's plans. An interesting thing about uh, this complaining um, is that in, in the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms that are there, uh, 51 of them are a type of lament or a, ty- a type of complaint or a complaint psalm. And so we're going to start today by looking at Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 5, and I'll just read that. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And did Jesus not say the very words of Psalm chapter 22 and verse 1 in Mark chapter 15 verse 34? And Jesus showed us what a legitimate, honest questioning uh, kind of entails. And and you see that that telling God what is really on our heart is, is an okay thing to do even if it's complaining. And if we question God just for the sake of complaining, though, and not expecting an answer from God, then that's just griping, and and that's a form of disbelief. But the key to complaining is to complain to God. Not about God, but to God. And it's important for us to realize that we're speaking to a person, a person who will hear and will respond to us. And we can complain, but we need to expect an answer. And when that answer comes... Know that when God answers that, that's truth. That's true. And something Habakkuk was frustrated about was the, 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 the delay, like my da does, delay of justice. And if we look at Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, I'm not going to read it all, but I'll paraphrase it for you. Jesus tells us of the parable of the unjust judge. Saying God isn't like that authority, like that unjust judge, but but he gladly and he swiftly listens to his people. And the question about faith is whether God will find faith on earth if there is no delay to bring about that faith. Would that be possible without the delay? And God is good and he, he wants to act swiftly, but oftentimes the greater good for us is in the delay. Because it's in the delay that allows God the opportunity uh, for our faith to be exercised to God. And God places such an importance on faith, that delay, that He risks His own reputation. He risks Him looking bad in order for us to have faith because of His delay. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, there's a reminder that God delays judgment so that His patience will allow an opportunity for repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
God does not desire any to perish. And, and that delay could be motivated by God's attempt to offer mercy to sinners, to come to repentance. And when we started this series a few weeks ago, because of things happening in our community, we talked about the destruction, the violence, the strife, the conflict, the injustice, the wrong in Judah. And what kind of sparked it all was that was kind of happening here to us in our community, right here in Oakland. And, and God, God saw these same injustices and told Habakkuk that he was going to use the Babylonians to bring judgment on Judah. And the prophet just simply didn't like God's answer. And he questioned how God can use this more unjust group of people to judge a relatively more righteous group of people. See, because most of us, we, we would prefer revival over judgment, wouldn't we? God, make a change, make a change, but don't judge us. Just revive us, right? And so it's the same for Habakkuk, who, who probably hoped the same thing, that God would bring justice through a revival of the community, that, that the community would change within, rather than a judgment. But may we be as close to, to, to God as Habakkuk was to have this open and this frank dialogue with God. So here we are picking up at verse 6, chapter 2, where God tells the prophet to write down this vision. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not, for, not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. The phrase, all these, in verse 6, it's referring back to verse 5 where it mentions all nations and all peoples. Babylon will conquer many nations. Babylon will conquer many civilizations and subject them to Babylonian rule. And eventually... All of these nations and these peoples that they took over, they will in turn taunt against Babylon. Now, let's be mindful of how oppressed people sometimes, you know, they only have a few ways to, to cope with their oppression. And some of those ways of coping involve, you know, satire or sarcasm or humor against their oppressors. And that's, what's, that's what happened during the Cold War. When, when people were oppressed by dictators, they, they, there were all these humorous sayings and stories and jokes that were created during that time uh, by people who lived in those countries. And, and it was this humor that helped them uh, kind of keep their spirits up during the hard times. And here's an original joke from that time. So a Russian peasant visits the Lenin mausoleum near the Kremlin in Moscow. And without buying a ticket, he goes to a guard and whispers to him, Psst, hey, comrade. I want to talk to Lenin. The Russian guard says, he's dead. He's, he's laying in his coffin in the mausoleum. The next day, the peasant comes back and asks the same thing again. Psst, hey comrade, I want to talk to Lenin. The guard gets angry and shouts to the peasant, Lenin is dead. He can't hear you, he can't talk to you, so go home, comrade. The peasant goes home, he comes back the next morning and asks again. Psst, comrade, I want to talk to Lenin. Then the guard gets mad and he violently shouts at him. He says, I told you Lenin is dead. What is wrong with you, comrade? Why do you keep repeating this question? And the Russian peasant answers, because it's so good to hear that he's finally dead. So joking and satire, sarcasm, that, that's a way for the oppressed to cope. So we see some sarcasm here in verse 6 from the oppressed as they have the scoffing and these riddles for their oppressors. And along with the scoffing was going to come the judgment of God. 
Now keep in mind that all of this hasn't happened yet when this vision was being revealed to Habakkuk. It was a vision of the future that God was sharing with Habakkuk. Babylon hasn't invaded Judah yet, but there are some woes here that we're going to talk about a little later. For those who are oppressed, isn't it good news when God's judgment arrives? I think so. It's something you look forward to, right? That's, that, that's something we can expect from God. God will judge those who oppress others, who inflict violence on others. It's good news that God will judge those who oppress. That there will be justice. Now, if there is no judgment from God, what hope do we have for justice? The hope that we have for justice is that God will judge. And Habakkuk received news that God will raise Babylon to judge Judah. But Babylon would go too far with that, and they will in turn receive judgment themselves, as it's written in Jeremiah chapter 27. And Babylon's time of judgment would come, according to the prophet Jeremiah. So, so we think about living our lives in a, a faith, in a world such as ours. And we talked about faith last week, and, and so how are we to live life in a violent, unjust community like ours? Well, I think we have to acknowledge as believers in God that the judgment of God operates in our world, which is a good thing, but it's also a scary thing. The judgment of God is a scary thing, even for those of us who are anxiously awaiting for the judgment to happen. But before a holy and almighty God, it's still a scary thing for us, isn't it? But can you imagine how scary it is for those who are guilty, not righteous before a holy God, that those who hurt others now now will will be hurt themselves in the future. So what do our verses today tell us about God's judgment? Well, I think it lays a foundation for us to define what justice is. Let's begin again with verse 6, and we'll read through verse 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What are these verses saying? It's saying that the day is coming when other nations will rise as a collection agency and, and take back what was theirs. There will be a day when, when the tables will be turned and what was done to those who were plundered will now in turn plunder. And here's the justice piece. We, we see the clear and exact justice here with retribution. And it is with God who ushers in this justice. There is justice in God's judgment. Psalms chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assemblies of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and heart, O oh righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. In David's troubles and, and sufferings under Saul, we find that David appealed to God as the righteous judge. Our God is a God who judges. 
And we find David praying that the evil of the wicked would come to an end, and that can only happen if God judges the wicked. And David sees how a righteous and just judge in God is necessary. And sometimes we have a difficulty with accepting that God is a judge. But we need it if we want justice. And it's not just David, but Paul also addresses this uh, justice issue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Paul was communicating to the suffering Thessalonians, Thessalonian believers that, that God is a God of justice, and, it, and it's good news for the afflicted in Jesus because there will be a time where deliverance will arrive for them. Everything will be made right with Jesus in his second coming. When Jesus comes back, he will make everything right for his afflicted people. Justice will be delivered and we will experience that Jesus has a a justice for us. That we won't go on forever not receiving that justice from God. Back to Habakkuk, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In these verses, we see the futility in God's judgment. Not the futility of God's judgment, that there's a futility in God's judgment. Let me try to explain this. Part of God's judgment is in the frustration He builds into all of the human efforts that are striving for a stability or a security in themselves. You look at verse 9 again at how the Babylonians try to build for themselves safety, security, stability. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Babylon believed that they would be secure in their own security and stability. And part of how they did that was they were building up their riches. And it was how the Babylonians sought stability, security. But God builds in a frustration there as he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. God is simply saying that's not going to work. And they're, they're not going to get away with their injustice that was built off their own fleshly conquests. God built in this frustration, a futility in their plans, in their designs for security, stability. And what they did was, was cut off many peoples in verse 10. Their own building is going to rat them out, testify against them, and everything will be found out. Verse 11. In verse 12, there's another woe here. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. See, the first woe was directed toward those who build their security for their own gain, depending on themselves for security. The second woe is directed toward those who build their fortunes by hurting others. You check out verse 13 as at how God works. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. See, it's from God. It's from God's doing that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. 
People may come up with these plans and these plays for power, but God has built in a futility in their plans, in their lives, and it will be for nothing. That's part of God's judgment. And you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30, because we're going to see some covenant curses for Israel here. Israel will be judged for being unfaithful to God, and we're going to see these frustrations and these futilities in these verses that, that God has interjected there. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. So you get a sense of the frustration, the the futility in that judgment, in God's judgment, things that you'd come to expect won't come to fruition. Things that you would expect, it's the natural progression, they just won't happen. In God's judgment, sometimes you don't get to experience what you were hoping for. And you look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 20, and you see how Isaiah expresses this frustration. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. Do you get the picture there? Right? It's like when you visit a relative's house, but, but they're not really prepared for you to stay overnight. Right? And, and, but you stay the night, and, and there's only a love seat for you in the living room. And it's too short, so your legs are hanging over. And it's too narrow, so you're kind of hanging out this way. And you're just cramped on this love seat. And they don't have any blankets for you, but they have a throw. And so this throw, it covers your torso, but your legs are exposed. So when you're cold, you cover your legs, but your body's exposed. And then you cover your front half, but your back half is cold. And you cover your back half, your front half. It's just frustrating. See, God God sometimes He builds this frustrations, this futility into people's plans. And back at chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? Then we have the rationale in verse 14, as it begins with the word for. So here's the rationale. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the reason why all wicked human power plays for dominance will end up as nothing. It's because it's God's kingdom. It is not man's kingdom. It is God's kingdom. The earth will not be filled with man's glory, but God's glory. And not just God's glory, but the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There will be an acknowledgement of God's glory. There will be a confession of God's glory. And that's where everything is headed. So isn't anything outside of glorifying God just futile? But people and nations are driven by their own self-interest, aren't we? We want to deify people. We want to deify nations, ideologies, political systems, churches. But oftentimes, none of those things have a desire to usher in the kingdom of God. Instead, we see how people are abused and and oppressed when people seek the glory of their own kingdom. But we see in Scripture that the earth will be filled with the worshipers of God. He will be glorified. Verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And here we have the third woe to those who purpose themselves to humiliate and shame others. And there are actually five woes, and we'll get to those other two later. Verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. 
for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And so here we see the fearfulness in God's judgment. Habakkuk is recording not just the just judgment of God, but the fearfulness of the judgment of God. And you see that all the cruelty, the sadism, the harsh and crass actions practiced on the oppressed will be returned to the oppressors. The terror inflicted on the terrorized will be returned to the terrorists. And we see this terror in verses 15 and 17. And so here is where we enter the rated R realm of the sermon. So I'm just seeing if there's any kids here. There aren't. So here we are, rated R. It's addressing Babylon's cruelty. Right? And in verse 15, it's talking about getting someone so intoxicated that they lose control of themselves and they shame themselves and humiliate themselves in their inebriated state. And it can just be them getting just so smashed that they're, they're, letting, their act, uh, they're letting them just act out their drunkenness and, and then they're just being entertained by like, ah, oh, look at what a dummy, look what he did, he fell over, he threw up or whatever. Or it can mean that he, they get them so intoxicated that they're completely helpless, they're completely defenseless, and then they perform sex crimes on them. Not sure exactly, but, but we do know that it's a preying on the helpless. It's a preying on the defenseless, whether it's mocking them in their helplessness or, or committing sex crimes on them on the defenseless. It's an example of Babylon's cruelty. And some people delight at the demeaning of people. They get a, a thrill from seeing people degraded. And there are some who are just heartless, heartlessly cruel inside of them. And they get this pleasure from seeing others suffer. They're entertained by humiliating others. So in verse 16, we see God's judgment. You will, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. There will be a time when Babylon will have to drink to the point of helplessness being defenseless, and people will be able to see their nakedness, to see that they're uncircumcised. Ha ha, pants down, you're uncircumcised. The shame will be returned. The same kind of humiliation will be returned. And you see the fearfulness in that. All the sadism, the cruelty, the terror, all of it will be returned. And we know that this type of sadistic, cruel, terrorizing behavior, it's all around us. Just two and a half months ago, a 15-year-old girl, I think she was 14 at, at the time, she was gang-raped in Richmond after attending her homecoming dance. It's less than 12 miles away from us. And she was beaten. They committed sexual crimes against her. She was robbed. They took pictures of her. They videotaped her. They laughed about it. They, they did this for two hours. And I have a friend in Richmond PD who could tell us a lot more details about it. But you get the picture of the vileness there. And there was a sadism there with that gang of people who delighted in it. They enjoyed humiliating this teenage girl. But that shame and that humiliation will be returned to them who committed such a crime. After the violent crime, there was an interview with a leader of a gang in, in the neighborhood who told the perpetrators that they better hope that the police find them before they do. This is street justice, right? And for any of you that have been in prison before, you know what this is. It's, it's, it, they have their own form of justice there. That those who committed such a horrific crime have a different justice system to worry about inside the prison as well as what's happening outside. 
See, God builds in these type of things. And we, and we hear of the different stories around the world, different periods in history where people are humiliated and shamed while their oppressors find this fiendish delight in their cruelty. And it's so prevalent here, right here in Oakland, right now, not in the past, in the present, where, where human trafficking and slavery, they're happening right here, right now in our city. We don't even have to look further than where we live, where we work, where we go to church. And in talking to an FBI agent friend of mine, about sex trafficking right here in Oakland. You know that shame and and humiliation, those are one of the top tactics that are used by these perpetrators. And what they'll do is is they'll groom. They'll groom their victim by by picking them out early on in their early age, and then they'll buy them flowers and an iPod and and some clothes and treat them well and make them feel special and and take them places and all that. And then when they earn their trust, trust, they'll they'll bring them to this party where alcohol is almost always involved, and, and this girl will be trained she will be gang raped. She'll be totally humiliated, totally brainwashed that she can't possibly go home now. She's used goods. She can't possibly go home now. And that it's better for her to be part of a stable. These fiendish people use terms reserved for animals, for humans. And then she's often impregnated by her pimp so that her baby can be held hostage. Because if you report it, we're killing this kid. Or you're never seeing this kid again. It's happening right here. Right now. And we see people who humiliate others and profit from them. And then there are those who who pay into this sex trafficking. Many of whom I've met personally, personally counseled. And, and maybe you don't get this fiendish delight from participating in, in the sex trafficking because it's more of a lust issue for you or, or you're not thinking it's, it's something else, but it's not really directly with that. But that's how you, you're expressing your sin. But, but you're feeding into the cruel treatment of a human being. And God help you because judgment will be upon you. And if you're struggling with, with something in connection with the sex trade, whether it be child pornography or, or visiting these so-called massage parlors, speaking of that, there's one on International that we're working to shutting down right now because they want to renew their lease, looking for an escort service on the Internet, whatever it is, you need help. And we need to talk and, and try to get some help for you. There are things you can do to be part of the solution rather than continuing to feed into the problem. See, those, those are people. Those are not animals. That, that is someone's child. That is someone's sibling. That is someone's parent, grandchild. And you need to stop supporting this, this sex trade. It's a sin. You will be judged. And it's a warning I'm issuing because there's a fearfulness in God's judgment. Because when that type of cruelty is inflicted on people, it will come back to you. And it's not just about people who are directly involved in such evil, but all of us have this capability within us, don't we? And you're thinking, no way, man. I would never visit those places. I, I would never browse on the internet for those spots. or I would, I would never do anything specific to the sex trade. Maybe not. But I think what's in all of us is this delight to see someone humiliated or shamed, and we get a pleasure out of it. I think that's within all of us. 
I think that's pretty reasonable. I, I'm guilty of this. Right? If, someone, if someone just simply cuts me off on the freeway while I'm on the carpool lane and they're a single driver, right? and they cut me off and my family's in the car, you know what I do? I pray for a chippy to be there. Get him. Nail him. I'm hoping for justice. And that is good, right? Justice is fine. But I go beyond that. I go beyond that. I don't only hope that he gets the $451 fine or whatever it is. I hope that when I drive by, that he's handcuffed and he's thrown on the, the hood of the cop car and his truck is being on the flatbed. I'm hoping for that. Right? And, and some of you guys are thinking, yeah, that guy deserves that. But maybe you suffer from the same thing that I struggle with. A heartless heart. All he did was come into my lane. I mean, come on, why do I want all that to happen to the guy? It's a heartless heart. And we, he just went ahead of me on the freeway. Big deal. Why such the heartless spirit? Why such the delight in someone else's misfortune? Why the enjoyment at looking at, at someone who's now helpless or defenseless? It's a heart problem. And I think to some extent we all have one. And I'm not talking about like the physical heart. We have a heart problem, right? And we might not think that we're as evil as the one who's exploiting others for sex, and maybe we're not, but the same heart characteristic is probably in us one way or another. And maybe we, we love to control. Maybe we love to dominate and hold others in misery. And, and some of us are guilty of this, doing it in our own homes, to our own families. Or maybe in the workplace where you're doing it to your colleagues or people that are subservient to you or people that report to you or that you, you report to them. Or maybe even in your ministry. Acting like a Babylonian, going around inflicting pain, manipulating people. And some people enjoy the power that they have over others and it's used to hurt them, degrade them, make them feel less than they are instead of bless them. Abusing their position at home at work or at church or wherever it may be. It's a heart problem. And sometimes we think we're justified in how we're acting because we're, we're moving ahead, we're getting ahead, we're, we're building a security, we're making it stable, we're holding people accountable we're, for our group, for our race, our church, our community, our family. God rejects those arguments. It is simply wrong to do wrong to others. Plain and simple. It's wrong to do wrong to others. It's never right to disgrace others. And in gaining for our own so-called house, whatever that may be, family, work, ministry, whatever, to build our communities, we, we, we better be mindful at, at how we treat others and, and how the Lord's judgment will come, come upon us if we mistreat them. Because according to verse 11, our very house will testify against us. So how do we deal with our heart problem? We have to cry out to God for a new heart. There has to be a heart transplant. Otherwise we run the risk of facing the fearfulness of God's judgment. But we also have the protection of God's judgment. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? There's more sarcasm if you don't get that from the Bible. Behold, 
It is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. There is nothing created by man that will be able to withstand the judgment of God. There's no religion or superstition to help them from God's judgment. Not only will false idols and false beliefs and false teachings do no good, but they're damnable. And we see that the things people put their hopes in other than God are foolish, they're evil, they're tragic. And here was the last woe. It was directed towards those who have these false beliefs and false idols. In the last verse for tonight, verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. God's in heaven. He's, he's on His throne. And, and the silence that is referred to can possibly be the silence before this judgment is announced. Kind of like when you're in a courtroom. It's just kind of hush until you know, the, the judge makes his announcement. Or maybe a pause of silence so that repentance can be expressed. Or maybe it's a time of reverence. I'm not sure. But in this vision of judgment, where's the hope? I thought the Bible was hopeful. Like, What's going on here? Where's the hope? Well, keep in mind that this is a judgment vision here. So, but the, the hope, the hope is only from the one referred to in verse 20. The Lord. Hope can only come from the judge. You take a look at verse 16 again. Let's go back to verse 16 in Habakkuk chapter 2. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now this is a metaphor of God's judgment. It's an imagery of the righteous, the holy, and the proper wrath and anger of God against the sins of man. And you can look into some this some more uh, by turning to Isaiah 51 and reading Ch- Jeremiah chapter 25 and you can get more of a picture there. So, so here's the protection of God's judgment. And you're like, how? How is this the protection of God's judgment? Well, let's go to Mark chapter 14 verse 36 where Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And do you know what that cup was? See, the cup wasn't the fear of uh, physically suffering or physically dying. It was the cup in the sense that all the metaphors, all the imagery and the pictures of the Old Testament anger and wrath was behind that cup. It's it's the cup from the Old Testament prophets, the, the cup of God's wrath against human sin. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to suffer or die. He was was shrinking away from God's anger, the cup of God's wrath. That's what he was shrinking away from. Remove this cup from me, Jesus said. We didn't see Jesus drink this cup, though, did we? But we sure heard it. We heard him drink that cup. You remember in the beginning of this sermon where we talked about Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus recites this verse in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are we hearing there? We are hearing him drink the cup. We are hearing the Son of God in whom God was well pleased, drinking the cup of God's wrath against human sin. And when we come to the cross at Calvary and and we look at the cup at the base of the cross, it is completely Empty because Jesus completely drained it for us. So here we have the only protection from God's judgment. It is only under the refuge of Jesus' blood and what he did for us on the cross.
And when we come under the refuge of Jesus, we will be silent. Just like in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. In complete adoration, in complete gratitude towards our Lord. Let's pray. God, you are the Father of lights. You are the, the Lord of nations. You are the ruler of governments. You are the judge of tyrants. Lord, I thank you for showing us that there is no refuge from you except in you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, for those who do not realize that, that you would speak to them, that you would um, touch their heart. And I ask, God, that you would also work within all of our hearts as we all have some sort of a heart problem. I pray, Lord, that you would make us able to live as you lived and to, to see as you, you saw things, um, to give us a heart like yours. In Jesus' name, amen.